Okay, church, why don't you grab your seat if you can? And tonight is a special night. We're in week two of our series going through the book of Ruth. And Pastor Brett kicked us off so beautifully last week. Give it up for Pastor Brett preaching for us. And tonight we have another special guest. Dr. Chris Green is a, an Oklahoma boy, so I already like him. And he's a theologian and has taught at some of the great universities on the planet. He's a pastor. He's a poet. He is an artist that can paint a canvas. Like, unbelievable. Like, how in the world does all of this exist in one human being? And somehow in Dr. Chris, it does. But as I said today in the email to you that he's got a tender heart. He loves the Lord. He's in tune with the Spirit. He's a gentle man of God, and he knows the Lord's voice. And so tonight, it is a real treat for me to introduce you to one of my friends, and I want you to lean in tonight. I want you to shout him down if you feel like it, but let's just trust the Spirit to speak to us out of Ruth chapter two. So join me tonight in welcoming Dr. Chris Green. Good evening. It is good to be here. And it's my first time here at, at church on Friday night, but these are old friends and I'm grateful for all of them. Daniel, thank you so much for this invitation. Thanks for the care you've already shown to us. Thanks for having my wife and me, Julie, up for a long weekend. Andrew, Andy, the, the Duncans and the Midtown folk, like old friends and deeply, deeply grateful for who you've been to us already and excited about where this goes next. I wanna talk as, as Daniel said about Ruth too, and you'll have to forgive me. I'm absolutely intoxicated. Can I say that here? I'm absolutely head over heels <laughs> with this story. Like I, I've of course known the story. I, I grew up in a church, a King James only church. And so I, I heard this story dozens and dozens of times as a kid. I thought I knew it inside and out. I've preached from it as a pastor. I've taught, taught it as a professor. But this time when I was invited, I read it again. And it absolutely floored me what I think the Lord is saying in this story to us. So I'm going to talk for a little while, then I'm going to stop talking. It won't really be a sermon. It's just you're going to get a kind of torrent of reflections that have no, has no discernible beginning or end. I'll just stop at some point. There's, there are no points. I don't know how you'll take notes. You just probably scribble. That's what my notes look like. In fact, I don't, I don't have any notes up here. You'll, you'll see. But I, what I hope you catch is that intoxication because I do believe down to my bones that this is a word, not just for those of us in this room, but the people of God in this moment. I don't mean that in some grandiose way, you'll see. It's not that I've discerned something, it's that this story, by the creative wisdom of God, touches the nerve that has to be touched in every generation, in which in the midst of our turmoil, in the midst of upheaval, we come to realize that the Lord's ways are not our ways, and that his thoughts are not our thoughts, and that the way he brings change into the world is often surprising, it's always better than we imagined, it's often unsettling, but it never does violence to anyone. When God brings change, it is disruptive, it's sometimes terrifying, 
but it never violates the integrity of any person. And this is a moment, as every generation has to have, in which we need that kind of change. Because the change we can bring, we might persuade, we might cajole, we might force, but often the change we bring requires violating other people or violating ourselves. But God's change violates no one. And thank God, right? God's change heals. So we're gonna talk about Ruth. Let me say a little bit about, and and forgive me, I haven't heard what Pastor Brett said last time, so I I don't know exactly if we're on the exact same page here, but I'll let Daniel clear that up later, if if not. As, As I understand it, the book of Ruth is written at one time, but it's written about another time, right? So it's written pretty late in what we think of as Israel's biblical history, after the exile, so there's a point in the sixth century where Israel, after the kings, after David, after Solomon, after Solomon's sons, the kingdom has fallen into turmoil, the the nation is split, and slowly judgment begins to come, and the northern and southern tribes are separated from each other, the northern tribes go into exile first, they're scattered around the world, the southern tribes gathered around Judah, gathered around the throne of David, They last a little longer, but then they too are driven away. And now here is Israel who had been promised that there would always be a son of David on the throne in Jerusalem. Now Israel is living in a world in which most of them are not in Israel. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The walls are broken down. The temple has been plundered. The presence of God has left the holy place. And now they are a people without a God, they think, Without a king, they know. Without a land, all they have is this past that they thought was deep with promises that could not be broken. And yet here they are in exile. And so living out there, far-flung corners of the world in Babylon and elsewhere, their lives begin to change. And one of the ways their lives begin to change is that they begin to intermarry. Now, most of you probably already know this, but Israel has always been, the people of God, the Jews, have always been a small community, very much aware of the ways in which God has chosen them because they're not an empire. And they have always been predominantly concerned about what you do when you get married. Be careful who you marry. This is, there's a deep concern in Israel with marrying within the people of God. And there's a deep concern about those who are not able to bear children. So if you read what we call the Old Testament, Genesis and Exodus, those stories are filled with the catastrophe of a woman who's barren or a man who does not fulfill his responsibility to carry on the line. And this story is about all of that. It doesn't sound particularly revelational or revolutional, but it absolutely is. So here's, here's the wonder. Now, someone, whoever this is that wrote Ruth, is living after the exile, after the temple has been emptied, after Jerusalem has been broken down, knowing Israel's history, and is living in the midst of the turmoil amongst Jews about what they should do with this intermarriage problem. We weren't supposed to marry Gentiles, and yet some of us marry Gentiles. What are we gonna do about that? And you can, as you, you won't have to imagine long, that can be pretty charged, right? We live in a moment that is incredibly charged around those kinds of issues. Not the exact same things, but pretty close. And there, you, you know from experience how difficult and ugly the conflict can be. 
how quickly it can escalate to violence of all kinds around the threat that comes when you break with tradition, when you do what you were told not to do, especially, especially when you believe that the judgment of God has fallen on you. And so this book is written at a time of unbelievable conflict within Israel, political conflict, interpersonal conflict. As a people, they are struggling with what it means to be the people of God, and they're at odds with how to respond to what they've done wrong. And Ruth is written in the midst of that turmoil. Here's what's astounding. You would never know it if you didn't know it. You would never pick that up from the story itself. If you didn't know what I just told you, you, couldn't ev- you could not guess that that's what this story is about. Because there is a kind of gentleness, a kind of playfulness and cleverness in the way that Ruth's story is told that catches you off guard. Now stay with me just for a moment. So Daniel and I, this, a few months ago, we shared, I, I was able to share with him a novel that I absolutely love called Master and Margarita. It's a Russian novel. Very, very, very strange as he can testify had a glorious experience. I was flying on a plane. It was a long trip. I read the whole book on the flight. By the time we're about to land, I'm sobbing so uncontrollably in the seat that the flight attendant is asking if I'm okay. Like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I just read a good book. It's fine. Like, it's, it's, it's all right. And so I'm, I'm sharing this with Daniel. We're talking about it. And it is this unbelievable novel, right? But here's what's staggering about it. It was written during, the, so during Stalin's regime in Russia, and it is very much a kind of anti-Soviet work, but you would never know it from reading the book. Right? In fact, I have a quote for you here from one of the critics reflecting back on when this book was written. The Master and Margarita, the novel that I shared with Daniel, didn't even bother to be anti-Soviet, yet reading this book would make you free instantly. It didn't liberate you from some particular old ideas but rather from the hypnotism of the entire order of things. I just want you to get this idea first before we come to Ruth, that there's a way in which you try to talk people out of ideas. Right? You try to argue them, you try to persuade them to see things the way you see things. And that, not always, but often becomes violent. Not physically violent necessarily, but verbally violent morally violent, intellectually violent. You're trying to force people to see what you see and you're pressuring them to do it because you're trying to change their ideas. But here's the wonder of our God. He's not interested in changing your ideas. He's interested in changing you. Jesus did not talk about ideas. When Jesus talked, he talked here, not here. He was, of course, wisdom itself. He knows all things. He was a studious man. He knew his scripture. Even as a child, he could stump the experts around him. But he spoke from here and he spoke to this place in people. Because he wasn't trying to get them to share his ideas. He was trying to bring them into alignment with the will of God. And that's an entirely different project. And if you'll let me risk this, it's Friday night. You've already let me say intoxicated, so I'm going to risk it. The prob- one of the problems right at the heart of the American culture wars that so many Christians are caught up in on one side or another or, or a third or a fourth side is that we're trying to win the battle of ideas. And you may win, but it will have nothing to do with God. 
You may convince people to share your ideas. That will have nothing to do, no matter what. It will have nothing to do with what God is doing. Because the work of the Spirit, the work of the mind of Christ is not happening in our ideas. It's happening in the depths of our spirits. You'll see where this is going, hopefully. Um, That's the plan, anyway. So this, this novel is, I think, a reminder that it's possible to bring great change, but without trying to shift the furniture of people's ideas around. Like, not trying to shed a little more light or to take a different perspective, but a fundamental altering of the way you are in the world. That's what we need. This comes from a, a long line of kind of Russian wisdom about how you bring change. And Alexander Herzog, who I've been reading lately, about almost exactly 100 years before Bulgakov wrote The Master and Margarita, he said this at another time in Russia's upheaval. He says, great revolutions are not achieved by the unleashing of evil passions. Somebody needs to go on Facebook right now and notify everybody. Like, (laughs) it's not gonna work. You're not going to bring about the change you want by unleashing evil passions. You must open others' eyes not tear them out, right? Open them up to the truth. Don't violate them in the name of the truth, right? Are you with me so far? Let's talk about the book of Ruth. So, Ruth chapter two. All of that's just background radiation. Now let's see if there's a big bang or, or if it just all stays formless and void. <laughs> so, so Ruth, as I told you, is written in the midst of Israel's darkest moment. Israel is godless, landless, kingless, exiled, lost, in in incredible conflict, unsure of what to do. And this book is written in that context. But it's set in the time of the judges. The opening line, as you heard probably last week, the opening line of this story is, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to live in the, Moab, the land of Moab for a while. Seems simple enough, except that that is a direct critique. Again, not written during this time, but it's written about this time. The time of the Judges, which the previous book in our canon is the book of Judges, which has a refrain that shows up, as you probably know, over and over again, which is, and in that day there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's chaos, right? It's utter upheaval. And there's incredible violence from without, although when you read Judges carefully, more of God's people are killed by the judges than they're killed by the enemies the judges deliver them from. Like one of, the, one of the cautionary tales of judges is God will raise up a judge to deliver you, but when you depend upon violence, you suffer more than the enemies you're saved from. I'm gonna say that one more time. God will raise up a deliverer for you if you want violence, but the violence will fall on you more than it falls on the enemies you're saved from. That's the whole witness of the book of Judges, right? There's this incredible corruption, incredible violence. This is really gonna scandalize some of you, but imagine like you're reading like a, a graphic, a Game of Thrones graphic novel. That's what Judges is like. Like unbelievably, unbelievably terrifying. And if you don't know that about Judges, just skip it. Don't, 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 <laughs> don't bother with it. No, it, it is unbelievably, unbelievably harsh, unrelentingly violent, terrifying. 
And we come right out of that into this story, which says, and in the time that the judges ruled, there was a man who took his family to Moab. And it's the first clue. I mean, we're not even 20 words in. And it's the first clue that you need to pay better attention. Right? What, did, what was the refrain from Judges? In that day, there was no king in the land of Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this meek voice, Ellen Davis calls this book the still small voice of Scripture. This little book rises up and says, well, not quite. Because in the midst of all of that, in the horror of what is happening, there was a man named Elimelech and a woman named Naomi and two boys who went to Moab and were met with hospitality. In the middle of all that stuff you were talking about, when, when, when Judges is saying everyone is living selfishly, destructively, violently, Ruth says, hold on a moment, not quite everybody. There were a few people who found another way. And here's another startling point. They went to Moab. They went to Moab. And we're not gonna do it tonight. We don't have time. I'm running out of time, of course, to do this. But on your own, you should look at Deuteronomy 23. So Deuteronomy 23, three to six, gives a command from Moses to Israel, prohibiting them from any association with anyone from Moab forever. You must not marry anyone from Moab. You must not allow anyone from Moab into your land or into the Lord's house, whatever you do. Why? Because when you wandered in Egypt, they refused to give you water and bread. When you wandered in Egypt, they refused to give you water and bread and they hired Balaam to curse you, even though it didn't work because God loves you and he turned the curse to a blessing. So whatever you do, Deuteronomy says, do not allow a Moabite into your land unto the 10th generation, right? In other words, if you intermarry, your family is out for 10 generations. And this book opens with, in the midst of the time of the judges, when things were at their worst, there's a man named Elimelech and a woman named Naomi and two boys, Malon and Chilion, and they go to Moab. And what happens in Moab? They're met with bread and water. And right from the opening lines, Ruth is telling you, don't believe everything you've heard. God is always at work behind the scenes. And sometimes the things you think could never happen, suddenly they do. I mean, right from the opening word, word being told, you were told these people will never show hospitality to you and you must never associate with them. But when Elimelech shows up, they embrace him with open arms. They put food on the table and they care for his family. And he lives there for 10 years. This is, again, the opening line. And the rest of the book is that kind of quiet subversion of everything you expect. This is staggering when you think about it. Remember, when was it written? The most tumultuous time in Israel's history. What's it written about? A, one of the most pressing issues in Israel's belief and practice. And there's not one bad person in the book. Did you know not one person, not one time in this entire book is anyone described negatively. There is no enemy in the book. There's drama, but no conflict. The Moabites aren't bad. Ruth and Orpah aren't bad. Elimelech and Naomi, Malon and Kilion are not bad. 
Boaz is not bad. Boaz's workers are not bad. The women who glean in the field are not bad. The man who does not redeem Ruth is not bad. No one is described in any negative way. Now, what's the power of that? Remember, this writer, whoever he he was or she was, is writing in the most tumultuous time possible. And the point is, he or she would not give in to judgments would not give in to generalizations, would not talk about those people. Just kept saying, all I know is, we went to Moab, they treated us really well. And, and this, this book is constantly surprising us. And I wish I had time to unpack all of these because it's, it's literally in every line. One, just to draw your attention to it in chapter one, when Naomi's husband dies and then her sons die, she and the two girls, Orpah and Ruth are going to go back to Bethlehem because they've heard that there's bread there now. And of course, Naomi tries to persuade them to stay. And she says offhandedly, you should return to your mother's house. This is a startling phrase in biblical tradition because you don't go back to your mother's house. You go back to your father's house. Right? And why is the, what's the point of the text here? Why is it drawing attention to the mother's house? What's in order to get you to pay attention, to say, this is subtle. You're gonna miss this if you're not paying attention. Like, this is not a graphic novel. This is not a Quentin Tarantino movie. There's not gonna be blood spurting all over the walls. Like, you're gonna to have to pay attention to the still, small voice, or you're gonna miss it, right? You're gonna to have to pay attention to the fact that what God is doing is so subtle, it's so quiet, it's so hidden, that you're gonna walk right past it. You've seen those videos, right? They were viral years ago about world-class violinists or pianists playing in the subway and people just bustling past them without noticing. That's what'll happen to, in this book if you're not paying attention. You'll read it like, oh, this is a sweet story about a man and a woman, they have a child, wonderful, and move on to Samuel. But the point is, this story stands between Judges, the time of horrific violence, Game of Thrones level violence, and then Judges, I mean, the rise of the kings, Samuel, first and second kings, Chronicles, and so on, that will lead to exile. And this is the hinge moment. And the wisdom of this story is, if you want to know how God works, like when you do what you want, it looks like Judges, it looks like Samuel, it looks like Kings. But when God does what he wants, you don't even notice he's working, your life is just blessed. Because God has no ego. God is not trying to get you to notice how powerful he is. Kings do. But God is not like that. This is one of the things I love most, and, and I'm way off track here, but this is one of the things I love most about the story of the water turned to wine or turned to grape juice, for those of you who don't want to be intoxicated. <laughs> you remember what happens, right? Mary notices they're out of wine. She goes to Jesus. She tells him. Jesus is like, what's that to me, woman? And probably not in that tone. I shouldn't, try to, I shouldn't try to imitate Jesus' tone. Sorry about that. So they, he, she tells the, the, the servants, hey, whatever he tells you to do, just do that, right? Because she knows his heart, right? And sure enough, you know the story. I'm not spoiling it for anyone. And at the end, after the water's been turned to wine and the, and the, the hosts have received it, and the governor of the feast has received the bride and groom, everyone is like, why did you, you saved the best wine for last, and then the gospel says, and this was the first of all the signs that Jesus did, and in this way he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. What? What do you mean he revealed his glory? Nobody knows. Who are the only people who know what happened? 
the people that carried the water. The only people who know are the people who carried the water, and that is his glory. Because all that glorifies God is the humility and smallness and quietness and gentleness and meekness and temperance and goodness and faithfulness that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. God is not an egomaniac. God is not demonstrating his power in order to cow you into belief. God is not violating you. God is working and the only people who will ever know are the people who carry the water. The only people who will ever notice are the people who carry the water. All right, I got eight minutes. Here we go. So to the text, to the text. Listen to this. Let's start in verse one. Are you still with me? If, you, if you've made it this far, I promise the last eight minutes are gonna be okay. Like if you've gotten to this point, it's gonna be, it's gonna be good. Okay, 10 it is, <laughs> 10 it is. <laughs> That's so good. All right, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side named Boaz. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. Ruth the Moabitess, notice the writer, he doesn't say anything bad about the Moabites. He doesn't tell anything about that history. He just reminds you she's a Moabite. Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone who allows me to? Naomi answered her, go ahead, my daughter. And there's this constant exchange of yieldedness and openness to correction and redirection. We don't have time to talk about that. She happens to be in the field belonging to Boaz. Later, Boaz arrives from Bethlehem. He's been busy and, or having coffee, who knows? He shows up and he says to the harvesters, the Lord be with you. And the harvesters respond, the Lord bless you. So in, in Ruth, and Ruth is, there's no, there's no kind of cliche here. This is not a Hallmark movie. It's not that people are being cheesy and talking in Christianese. I mean, we start with a famine. We start with the death of a man and two sons. We start with the separation of these girls, Orpah and Ruth, who love each other and love Naomi. This, this book is very honest about pain. But there is no bitterness except in, in, in Naomi, which I'll come to in a moment. There is no bitterness in the story. There's this kind of recognition that even though it's the time of the judges, even though there's famine, even though there is death all around, bless you. Be blessed. Think about what it's like to be able to live in the midst of deep, deep, deep pain. And what comes up out of you is not grumbling and complaining and backbiting and accusation, but the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. When that can be your exchange. And what Ruth is telling us is you don't have to ignore what's wrong to speak blessing to those who are around you. You don't have to blow smoke. Man, I've got all kinds of vice metaphors tonight. You don't have to, you, you don't have to, to pretend that the world is better than it is. You don't have to be one of those, you know, I'm, I'm too blessed to be stressed people. You can be honest, gut level honest about what you're experiencing and what comes up out of you is still blessing and not cursing, right? So they're exchanging blessing. That happens throughout the book, but then we gotta get to this, to this point. So Boaz asks, who is this person? Who is this woman? Who is this Moabite? Or who is this stranger? And the servant says, this is the Moabite who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. She asked us, will you let, us gather, let me gather grain with you among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and she remained from early morning until now, except that she rested a little in the shelter. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field. Don't leave this one. Stay close 
to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting. Verse 10, she bowed with her face to the ground and said to him, why are you so kind to notice me? Why are you so kind to notice me? Although I am a foreigner. And Boaz answered her, everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother and the land of your birth, by the way, that's a direct quote from the story of Abraham. She's the new Abraham. And how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord under whose wings you have come for refuge. There's so much about this that's staggering to me. But the first is, here is a Moabite woman, the most cursed people on the earth for Jews. And now she's shown up in a field uninvited and she's just taking grain. And Boaz comes up and says, what's that? What's happening here? And he doesn't get any kind of accusation. He doesn't get slander. He doesn't get gossip. What he gets is, oh, that's the Moabite. She's been working hard all day. And when he speaks, he says, he reveals that he knows her whole story. Because what makes a community healthy is what we might call good gossip. What, what makes it possible for Boaz to notice her is that he's heard what he should have heard about her instead of what he shouldn't have heard about her. This little community, in the time of the judges, when everybody is living, going to hell in a handbasket, this little community of people, they're only doing good gossip. They're only sharing what's true, not what they fear is true. They're only speaking blessing and not cursing. And so he sees her. They have an exchange. She comes home. I'm going to show you this, and I'm going to get out of the way. Verse 19, she comes back after he's fed her and given her grain. And he, the mother, she comes back. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, says to her, where did you gather barley today, and where did you work? May the Lord bless you. And may the Lord bless the man who noticed you. This is what I came to share with you. The key in this moment of incredible conflict all around us, global, but also national, regional, the conflict that's around us and in us, what God calls us to is this kind of wisdom. Noticing what should be noticed and not anything else. Seeing what's there and not seeing what you've been told is there. Cutting through the noise of accusation, through the noise of fear, into the heart of the matter. No, Boaz sees Ruth. And here's what's wonderful about it. We get this at the end of the book. Go ahead and stand with me and I'm gonna pray for you. We get this at the very end of the book. I told you, no discernible pattern here, but you'll, you'll get the gist. We get to the end of the book and we're suddenly told that Boaz is a son, a descendant of Perez who was a descendant of Tamar. It may seem like a throwaway line and if you don't know Israel's history well, you won't, nothing, you won't stop, you'll just go on. But here's the wonder of that. Tamar was a Canaanite woman. And in Genesis, Genesis chapter 38, Judah, the man whose tribe is being written about here, the father of them all, Judah takes this Canaanite woman, Tamar, and marries her to his son. 
and his son dies. And Tamar, I won't spoil the story, story for you. It's R-rated, but it's, it's worth reading. Not like Judges, you can read Genesis. That was a joke, guys. The, you can read whatever you want to read. I'm not, not policing that. The, Tamar is clever, and she finds a way into getting the blessing and not being ousted. She tricks Judah into including her in the family blessing. Boaz is her descendant. He's her grandson. And this is what happens when you know your story and you know your God. When you're standing in front of a Moabite who shouldn't be here, we shouldn't be talking to each other. You're not supposed to be in this land and I'm, whatever I do, I'm not supposed to touch you. But I know my God and I know what he's done in the lives of the people I know. And my grandma was a Canaanite. She was just like you, a Gentile, forsaken, under the curse, and our God included her. And that day, that man, Boaz, sees that woman, and he knows his God, and he knows his story well enough to know what she needs is blessing and not cursing. What she needs is mercy and not condemnation. What she needs is openness and hospitality. I can offer her the hospitality her people didn't offer mine in the beginning and in that way God will make it right. And what happens is through their marriage the line comes and David is born. And Malon who was already dead has a child and the point of of the book of Ruth is that God is faithful not only to the living but also to the dead. Now I gotta leave you with this. I gotta leave you with this. We're gonna sing Be Thou My Vision in a moment. The key is to look at Jesus, right? And, and I was gonna talk about that. It would make more sense, but I'll let you connect the dots. Here's, here's what I wanna leave you with. This is so deep in me. In the story of Ruth, the writer realizes the ways in which God, even though Malon is dead, God, through Boaz, brings a child to Malon's line. And from Boaz... From this line of Boaz comes David. But even the writer of Ruth can't imagine what God's gonna do for the other brother. Orpah went back. She went back to Moab. And Ruth is a story about how one of the two brothers, through Ruth, has his line. He's saved from death because he has children. But here's what Jesus reveals. The son of David is no less interested in the man whose wife went back to Moab than he is the woman who came on to Bethlehem. Do you hear this? It's not just, it's not just, this is the thing about Jesus. He not only does justice for the dead who are faithful, he is unrelentingly good. There's a story in Matthew 15. Jesus meets a Canaanite woman she says, will you heal my daughter? And he says, it's not right for me to give bread to dogs. And he says it playfully, I'm sure, although I'm not gonna try to imitate his tone. And she, she responds with, I don't know, I'm your puppy, I'll take the crumbs. And he says, I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel, go, your daughter as well. Now think about this, this is Jesus, this is Yahweh, this is God. The same God who had said, the Canaanites have to be eradicated. And now here's a Canaanite woman 
with a Canaanite child who's at the end of her life. And what does he do? Bless and not curse. Life and not death. Light and not darkness. Good and not evil. He does not violate anyone. So hear me, I'm praying for you. Pray for me, forgiveness for running over time. God sees you. God sees you. And God sees those people who aren't here, who went back. And what he's doing in your life is as much for them as it is for you. And when everything is said and done, it's not just that Malon and Ruth have a future. Kilion and Orpah have a future. It's not just those of us who make time on a Friday night to come hear a too long sermon. It's for the world. And when you know that, when you know that everybody you pass in the street, every person you see in every restaurant, everyone you meet in times of conflict or peace, every face you see is a face that God considers his own. When you know that, when you know that, then you've met the Jesus who's radically in love with you. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for these people. Thank you for your word to these people. But I pray that something of this story will infect them in a good way, as I think it's infected me. And that God, the work you do in us, the peace you bring, that only you can bring, God will find its way deep into us. God, we are in such a heated, ugly time. So many of us are. We all are under enormous pressures. Give us the wisdom of Ruth. Give us the wisdom of the still, small voice. Give us the wisdom of good gossip. The wisdom of blessing. Give us the wisdom of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. Feed us on that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing this together. Oh, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, and not be all else to me, save that thou art, thou my best thought, by day or by night. Sleeping, thy prayer.
you get your communion elements ready to receive? And if you don't have them, could you raise your hand and our team will quickly come to you? I'm going to wait just a minute while we get everyone served. Think about who's at the table with Jesus that night. Someone who's got 30 pieces of silver clanking around in his pocket. He's just sold Jesus off. The rest of them are going to run back to their old lives. They're going back to Moab. (laughs) Go back to Galilee. I'm going to pick up the family business again. And what does Jesus do? He feeds them the bread of life. And he feeds them the bread that will keep on feeding them when they come back home. (laughs) All of us, all of us belong at that table. All of us have great moments of victory and all of us have great moments of defeat and shame. And Jesus just keeps on feeding us. He comes out with the bread and with the wine and gives us his hospitality and restores the world. And so tonight, Remember Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Somehow by the spirit, that moment is being enlivened for us again. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. Would you break that little wafer there? And he said, I will be the hospitable one. This is my body, which is broken for you. And as often as you do this, Do this for the remembrance of me. Friends, Jesus is for you. You may receive the bread. On that same night, he took the cup of wine. He said, this cup is the new covenant given in my blood. And it's given for the remission of your sins. And as often as you do this, Do this for the remembrance of me. Remember what I'm like. Remember that I will always have drink for you. And so, Jesus, we receive renewal. We receive joy. We receive strength for the journey. We receive what only you can give us in and through this cup. Newness. Friends, your sins are forgiven you. You may receive the cup tonight. Shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will come on, church.
Church, would you open your hands tonight to receive the blessing, Father? Only you could make space for all the earth. (laughs) For Jews and Gentiles, clean and unclean, black and white and brown, and rich and poor, and educated and uneducated, and Republicans and Democrats, all the earth will shout your praise. And we pray that we would begin to get that deep in our bones and deep in our psyches and go out from here with blessing for everyone we encounter. Not just the people we like, not just the people who are like us, but blessing for everyone that we encounter. Do this work in us. So tonight I pray, church, may the Lord our God give you what you need to go be a blessing. May the Lord our God bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his bright smiling countenance upon you and all of your people and may he grant you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Let's give the Lord thanks for what he's done here tonight. And can you help me say thanks to Dr. Chris Green tonight? Thank you, Doc. I want to invite our prayer team to come down. Any of you who might need extended prayer, come join us. We would love to pray with and for you. If you're new, come see us at Guest Central. Go from here tonight in God's grace and peace. Much love.